All right. Good evening, everybody. Glad you could make it. Um, a lot of energy out there. I'm glad to hear. Glad to see that. Um, I want this to be as as fun as it can be, um, and uh, informative and interactive. So if you all have questions, um, by all means, raise your hands. Um, because we've set this up the way that we have with two sessions. Um, if we don't get through all of this, guess what? We have next week, and then I know how to fill in, because there, there are certainly other topics to cover. Um, before we get too much farther, let's open with a, a word of prayer, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll jump right in. Dear Lord, we, um, we just thank you uh, for bringing us here together, uh, for giving us this great nation, and, and the liberty uh, that, that comes with being a citizen um, uh, of the United States. Uh, Lord, we do lift up our nation during this, uh, this challenging season. Um, Lord, that uh, we be protected. Uh, we thank you in advance for your, your restoration, yes. your reconstruction. Yes. Um, Lord, we, uh, we thank you for your healing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, continue to protect those uh, in our, our leadership. Uh, bless them. Lord, we ask that you touch them, touch their hearts and their minds, um, uh, that, that there be a spirit of real truth and real unity, um, Lord, that uh, uh, we have discernment among our leaders. And, and here with us this evening, um, touch our hearts and minds. Um, uh, give us better understanding um, and... and uh, uh, perhaps better ways to be your servant, to fulfill your calling on each of our lives, uh, to be disciples and to be better disciples. Uh, in your name we pray. Uh, amen. amen. Um, those of you who don't know me, um, I'm one of those lawyer types that, uh, that Greg gets to joke around about every now and then. Um, and uh, I... I, 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 I uh, in my undergraduate studies, I, uh, I, I, was, uh, I majored in political science and economics, so it was a lot of fun at a party. Um, and, um, uh, but uh, it's an interest that I've always had. Um, and um, on occasion where I have seen the interactions between God's Word and our civics, um, I've been struck. Um, and what I'm hopeful for, for us this evening is that we're able to um, see where God's Word speaks to a lot of the topics, cultural topics, political topics of the day. Um, I'm going to be sharing scripture, if you've, been, if you've flipped through the outline. Um, I'm also going to be literally talking about some of the civics. I'm going to hopefully help you understand how to listen with a discerning ear uh, when people are discussing how the Supreme Court should approach an issue, okay, and uh, how you all might have some ways to, to listen, uh, to speak and share in meaningful ways with others, um, even fellow Christians, you know, we, uh, there, there are, are, there's a lot of deception in our, our world right now, in our culture, um, in a number of ways. So my hope is to, to, to 
it all comes together. It's, you know, politics, you know, God's sovereign over our government and created our government, and that government includes politics and politicians and courts. Um, so I think it's important that we have as good a under, working understanding as we, we can. So for that reason, that's, that's where this is going to go. Again, I want you to, to, to be very comfortable asking questions. I can sometimes talk fast. Um, so if I'm going too fast, slow me down. And, and those among our TV audience at home, um, my phone number is 772-708-9153. My wife, Kim... Is has my phone, so if you have a question, text it to her. And you know, if, if it works, uh, we'll try something different. You can ask a question or ask me to revisit something. I'm glad to do that. Um, so uh, with that in mind, um, this verse has has since I read it has resonated with me in terms of a spirit that we we should have as Christians in the world. Um, where are we? Okay, well, we're among wolves, and I think there's truth to that, particularly what we're seeing in our culture. Are we to be a wolf? No. We're to be wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove while being God's sheep. Okay, well, how are we going to do that? Well, being prepared, thinking in advance of when topics come up, how we cannot just be noise. So uh, let's, uh, let's go on. Um, first topic is engagement. Um, this is something that, that we frequently deal with. Is, you know, what is a Christian's obligation to participate in the political process? It, it's, it seems dirty, sully, um, controversial. Um, why vote? Does my vote make any difference? Um, and, and you'll see that it, it does. Um, the two, I, I look at the 2012 election because um, there was a 5 million vote difference in that election. And I'll let, I'm going to ask a rhetorical question. I don't want anybody to shout out the answer. But 2012, in that election, was our president someone that we felt adhered to Christian values? Okay. Don't answer the question, but let me go ahead and give a caution on that. For, 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 uh, as a church, we can't endorse, and I'm not intending to endorse any candidates or any political parties, okay? I want to follow um, truth and discussions about things along that lines, so I'm not intending to endorse any particular political party or, or candidate. But the, if, you, if you look at the numbers, um, the evangelicals stayed home. Okay, in that election. Um, 2016, there was a marginal difference, but it could definitely be better. 61% of the evangelicals stayed home, or excuse me, showed up. Um, the notional Christians, um, this is according to a Barna survey, 59% um, of them showed up. So we had a 4% a increase in the notional um, Christians and a 2% uh, in the evangelicals. Did that make a difference in the outcome? Again, rhetorical question. Um, there were other influences, but we, we tend to sometimes sell ourselves short. Um, we sometimes let our culture tell us and influence us out of our authority 
as Christians um, by being told that candidate X isn't good enough or without having the biblical discernment that we probably should be having. So um, I think that, that our first topic tonight, obviously, is going to be are we engaged? We should be engaged. Those in your sphere of influence, you certainly need to encourage as a Christian to participate because we do make a difference and we need to make a difference. And I'm going to get into some reasons as to why I think there's some obedience issues, you know. Um, has God ever used an ungodly person in Scripture? Um, and, and I'm not going to tell you, and I don't intend to tell you, that every ungodly person that checks the list right necessarily deserves your vote. But they certainly aren't somebody, if they're right on the biblical questions, but you have questions or concerns about who they are, okay, that doesn't disqualify them just because you may have some concerns. You're always going to be voting for the lesser of two evils. Always. Okay? I don't remember why I heard this, but I've always enjoyed this phrase. Until Jesus is on the ballot, we're always voting for the lesser of two evils. Got it? So if we're always voting for the lesser of two evils, is there an excuse not to vote? No. Okay? Because um, it's, it's just cooked into the process. We're all fallen creatures. Okay? Um, we're, we're all carrying around the same burden. Um, so we need to be kingdom-minded and think in terms of what does the Bible say? What is my faith require of me, okay? Um, what does that involve? Well, prayer, study, which you guys are here for that right now. We're all here. I, I learned more, you know, in preparing again. It's like, oh, wow, I forgot that. Oh, I forgot that. Always need to be sharp, be studied and informed, um, and Follow the discernment that's given to you by the Holy Spirit. Um, but don't stay home. Don't retreat. You know, we're here today, actually, you know, what, there are two topics generally that, that in public life we're not supposed to talk about. Religion and politics. We're taught that. That's not true. Okay. Um, it means, both of those mean so much to us in our day-to-day -day lives that we should, should be on top of that. Um, on the next slide, I've, we've gone over, I've identified some, some um, individuals that God has used, okay? Like it or not, God used Pharaoh. God used Egypt, um, even in the slavery. Think about Joseph bringing his family First, Joseph being brought to Egypt. What did that mean to the world, civilized world at that time? It saved Egypt, and it saved God's people. What was the next phase of that? Joseph's family being brought to Egypt and given the land of Goshen. That was the best incubator for God's people. 
under the protection of Pharaoh, given the best land to be fruitful and multiply. And then the fast forward, the time that God needed them to leave. Depression came. They became the nation of Israel, his chosen people, giving us Christ. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar um, uh, was served by Daniel. Um, Daniel, through his interactions and, and uh, impression he made of Nebuchadnezzar, became the leader of his kingdom. Daniel also was a big influence with uh, King Darius. If you remember with um, uh, the lion's den story, what was that about? Uh, an enemy of, of uh, Daniel wanted to target him in his worship. Wanted to, for 30 days, we're going to worship King Darius and no other. Daniel didn't, didn't, didn't obey. Was called up on that, was put in the den of lions and, and was protected. What was the outcome of that? King Darius gave an edict to protect God's people and all of his kingdom as a byproduct of that. Acknowledge the sovereignty of God as Nebuchadnezzar had done. Um, King Cyrus. King Cyrus, I think, is the one that we hear the most about. And, and what did he allow ha to happen? The wall to be constructed around Jerusalem uh, again, a non-believing king being used of God. So there's not an automatic mutual exclusivity in the men that God might select to serve him and their faith. And we just need to be mindful of that. You need to be mindful of the, the risks that, that go along with that as well, but, but I think that's important for us to consider. And, and where it matters in our, the public arena is what we hear from the culture. You know, The culture wants to separate the Christians from the Bible-believing leaders wherever they can, or the Bible-following leaders wherever they can and make you stay home or convince you to stay home. Hey, Paul. Yeah. A good example of that, you know, was in the beginning when I, you know, I follow, not that I'm a politician, but I do like to follow the politicians, kind of see where the world's going. And when I first was introduced to Trump, and I used to watch that show with him all the time, he had that show on, uh, you know, yeah, you're fired kind of thing. You know, everybody thought the guy was a real, not a real stand-up guy kind of when he took office, when he started looking into taking office, and he switched his, uh, you know, his whole political uh, background from being a Democrat to a Republican, that was the first thing that got my attention. And then uh, after seeing that, and then wondering, you know, what's God up to here? You know, what's he doing? Because, I mean, then all this stuff started coming out against him. And then I thought, wait a minute. So if somebody's coming against somebody, and they're starting to attack them, 
in a place where, you know, this person is being attacked for things that happened in the past. Now, we all have a past. We all were sinners, and we still are saved by grace. So when I saw a picture of Trump after this whole thing, before he was going into office, there was a picture of uh, all the uh, religious uh, strong leaders um, were around him, laying hands on him. And I could hear, the, and, and they did a video, and I could hear the prayer. It was, they were laying on hands and praying for the Holy Spirit to be on this guy. And I'm telling you, he went white as a ghost. I don't think he really realized at that moment that God was calling him at that second to be the leader of our country. And it was like something happened to him at that, on that moment. I have that picture. If anybody wants it, I'll show it. But I saw the transformation happen in front of me, just as the transformation takes place in our own lives. When we say, Lord, we need you, and he says, I called you, and you thought I, you were calling me. Thank you. And, and actually, as you were you're speaking, I, I've had these materials for a few years and make notes and so forth, and a note that, that, that you're right on point with, and that's this. As Christians... Are we, do we sometimes seek to force a standard that God might not be forcing? Um, you know, we need to seek the candidate that will more likely advance the kingdom of God. Again, going back to that, whether or not the, 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 the person is a perfect vessel or not, we know the answer to that already. Um, the next passage just speaks in terms of, I think one of the things as Christians having a really fine-tuned understanding of what sovereignty is for our country and how that comes back into um, our governance and our scripture, okay, and how is really helpful when we start talking about who our sovereign authority is and how scripture relates to it. Um, these verses here from Romans... Um, uh, speak to what we know. You know, there's no authority except that which God has established. Therefore, it's a necess it is necessary to submit to authorities. Now, when Paul wrote that, what sorts of governments did we have? Mostly monarchs, totalitarian sorts of governments. What were the sovereign authorities? The kings, the sovereigns, okay? Question I'm going to ask, and we're going to get through it. Is there a distinction for our, our, the way that we should be viewing sovereignty and what our sovereign is in relation to it? And then if we, with that understanding, how does it come into the Constitution? Excuse me, I just gave it away. <laughs> how, does it, how does it come into Scripture? Okay. Um, I'm holding up a, a quarter. And Greg, just so that you know, I have heads in your direction. If you're looking at it and you can see it from where you are, what do you see? A head. A head. A picture of George Washington. And I'm looking at the tail, and in this case, it's uh, John Brown Fort because it's uh, Harper's Ferry, okay, is the quarter. Okay. We see two different things, right? What is it, though? It's still a quarter. Okay. 
I would invite you, and, and, and it's going to happen as we go through this, Scripture can be a lot like this quarter because oftentimes God has many messages to come from the same verse, okay? Now, the trick is to not make the quarter a nickel, okay? And, and the culture will want to do that sometimes, okay? Twist it so it says what it really doesn't say. But I think that if we're sensitive to the Holy Spirit, you're going to see where Scripture says many things in the same sentence or phrase or concept. Um, all right. And here's one. Um, this is, you're familiar with this. I'm going to read uh, the Mark passage, uh, Mark 12, 13 through 17. And this is where Jesus is confronted over paying taxes. And they sent to him some Pharisees and some Herodians to trap him in his talk. First of all, these are both sides of the, I'll call them political spectrum, but these are from both sides of the religious establishment of the day in Jerusalem. The Pharisees being the Jewish consistent, uh, con contingency, the Herodians would be the, those aligning more with Rome. Okay, So he's being trapped between these rock and a hard place. And they came and said to him, Teacher, you know that uh, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought, it, brought him one. And he said to them, Whose likeness is inscription, and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. That passage has struck me in terms of speaking to our obligation to the civil authority. Okay? What Jesus is saying there, again, is, I think is multidimensional. Okay? For us... On this topic, I think Jesus is speaking our obligation as a Christian to render under the civil authority with Caesar. So rather than Caesar, we'll say civil authority. To render under the civil authority that which is the civil authorities. Okay? Um, how does that relate to this topic? What is our primary civil authority? It's our Constitution. It's not our president. It's not Congress or the congressmen and senators holding the position. It's our Constitution. Our founding fathers gave us the Constitution. We are a government of laws, not men. So when we're reading Scripture, I think it's important that we remember that distinction in terms of our obedience, the sovereignty. So God has given us the Constitution, okay? And that's where our primary allegiance civilly, civically should be.
The Constitution represents a form of democracy that is the centerpiece of that structure, and, it, and the centerpiece of that structure of that structure is our responsibility to vote. Okay, because our founding fathers recognized that the power rests where among the people. How does that power get expressed? Voting. Okay, it's a bottom up not a top down. Our culture right now wants it really to be a top down, not a bottom up. So when we don't vote, when we don't write letters to the editor, when we don't pray, what are we doing? We're rejecting the civil authority that God has put over us. So if we were Jesus... I'm going to go take it a step. If we were Jesus being asked by the Pharisees and the Herodians, the answer would be don't pay taxes. Okay, I'm going to be that literal. Okay, Jesus didn't say that. He said, pay your taxes, render unto the civil authority that which is the civil authorities. So it's critical for us. And I think it's a matter of obedience myself. Look at it as a gift from God as well, okay? God gives us good things. God's given us the Constitution. God's given us the ability to vote and participate in our government with, in most times, without being um, treated poorly. We don't have to go to jail, you know, if, if you were in other countries, if you were in China and you wanted to speak freely, you're going to jail, okay? So, so it's a gift. It's an opportunity. How is that comparable to the parable of the talents? You know, the master, there were three servants, five talents to one, two talents to another, and one talent to the third. The one talent... Servant did what with his? Buried it. Didn't use it. What happened? It was taken away. Have you ever felt like you, your, your ability to participate, influence your government, the government's interest in you has been taken away? Um, If you look at some of the Supreme Court decisions, you know, that have come out, you know, the, I'm not going to give you the names, but pertaining to same-sex marriages, um, the Obamacare, I won't get into that, but there were, there, there was some faulty thinking in my humble opinion on Obamacare uh, and the opinion that dealt with that. Okay. I remember if we had a better Supreme Court, we would have a better outcome. How do we have a better Supreme Court? Voting, okay? Um, in a little while, we're gonna talk about Roe v. Wade, and I'm gonna probably make you lose a little sleep overnight because of where that could go. By the way, some of the material, like uh, commercial time, 
Um, Day Barton, wall builder, this is a great Bible. Um, it has woven in it a lot of articles. Um, it's the Founder's Bible. If you don't have it, it's like $50. Last time I, I, I priced them. Um, so there's nothing new under the sun, present company included. Um, great resource. Yes. What I'd like to do now is... Um, is shift to anger. Is there any anger in politics right now? Um, um, and I think it's important that we realize that. I think we understand how, in, in, in a lot of arenas, our personal life, anger and how it influences us, how it influences others, how their, somebody else's anger influences us, and, and having a biblical understanding of it. Um, because I think... Um, I don't remember how long ago I did this teaching the first time, and I just kind of stumbled into it, and um, said, wow, this is really, really neat. So I I think having an understanding of anger before we, you know, get into the meat and potatoes of some of the other things um, will be helpful. And um, uh, are are we at our best when we're angry? More often than not, no, we're not. Um, Have you heard the expression righteous anger? What does that look like? Okay. Is it an oxymoron? It might be. You know, it's a contradiction in terms. Um, so, I've always liked this quote from uh, Abraham Lincoln. Do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Now, as a practical matter, there's some people out there that are never going to be our friends. Okay. But that's about them, not about us and not about our heart and our obligation, okay? Um, and, and this is a civic way of the Great Commission as well, when you think about it. You know, the Great Commission were to go out and make disciples, okay? What Abraham Lincoln is saying when he says this is very similar. Come to terms with them. Um, Ephesians 4.26 and 27, um, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and, go new, and give no opportunity to the devil. Okay, I want you to hold on to uh, be, be angry and do not sin. There are two, two things going on that, will, that are informative. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Very good words. Anger is an emotion, okay? It's not a verb. Excuse me. Anger is a noun, okay? So if it's a noun, in and of itself, it's not a sin. It's an emotion. Are our emotions given to us by God, okay? I want to make that clarification because I'm not saying sin, excuse me, anger is sin. It's what we are at risk for doing in our anger that can become the problem, okay? Um, So if we're acting out in a righteous anger, okay, if that thought is in your mind, I would implore you to stop because you might not be, okay? Um, And and we're going to have fun with this. All right, first... um, Old Testament understanding of, uh, what I want to do is look at a couple biblical stories 
and then um, and including, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Jesus. Um, Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain was a farmer. Abel was a shepherd. They made an offering. Um, God didn't favor Cain's offering, and as a result, Cain had an emotional response that involved anger. And there's some really powerful words from God. Verse 7 um, of Genesis 4. Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Okay? God's ministering to Cain's emotions at this time and his anger. Okay? What's the outcome? We know. Cain murdered Abel. His anger was out of guilt, jealousy. God pointed out that there's a close proximity between your anger and where you might be headed. Okay, is there a lesson there for us? Is there a close proximity that when we're angry, we're brushing up against something that may be a problem for us? Okay? Jonah. Jonah's anger, uh, he went went to, uh, was supposed to go to Nineveh, went to Tarshish instead, finally gets to Nineveh. God wants him to do what? Preach to the people of Nineveh, the king of Nineveh, in order for them to repent. repent. And in Jonah's eyes, what happens? Unfortunately, they repented. He didn't want them to, okay? That's why he didn't want to, because he felt they deserved what God was going to do to them, okay? So Jonah, Jonah became angry. He became angry at God's grace and mercy. We can sometimes be drawn to that. We watch somebody else that we have a, an axe to grind with, a political party or a, you know, whatever, a, 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 a political leader. Okay, We've got to be careful. Um, he admitted to God that, that he went to Tarshish because he knew that Nineveh would repent. It's in there. I, I didn't want to go because I knew they would repent to you. Um, there are two times when they repented, he said, oh, God, take my life. He wanted to, his anger and his anguish over this was, was so dramatic to him that God, take me, okay? Then uh, he's sitting on the hill, and if you don't remember, the vine grows over him, gives him shade, and it goes, it wilts. God, kill me because the vine went away. He was angry because the vine took place, uh, went away. So, you know, the lesson, he had a self-righteous and selfish anger. He sought to protect his own view of judgment and condemnation, okay? Are we ever there? Um, what God wanted him to do was rejoice in the repentance of others, as we should, not relish in their misfortune. We should welcome the opportunity to participate in godly repentance and res restoration. I think we're called to do that. And righteous anger is not self-righteous anger. Okay? 
And I think that, that, uh, that, that that's, that's an important consideration for us. Angry, anger, like I said, is an emotion, but it's, you know, I, 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 whenever I do this lesson, I have wince about the memories of this and that where I've said or done, okay? Um, where should our anger be focused on? Evil. Not the person, the sin. Not the sinner, but the sin. Um, God taught, or Jesus taught that we should seek reconciliation, not vindication. And I want to go to, um, no, it's not moving, come on. There we go. Um, quick, uh, now let's, how did Jesus talk about anger? I'm going to invite you guys to do what I did. Go to your concordance, gospels only, at some time in the future, and look up the word anger and ang- words anger and angry, and see where it takes you. And I did that with the idea of with the idea of culling from Scripture where Jesus was brushing up against anger in order to help me understand the, the, where he was and where he was not. Where he used it in Scripture, where, in his parables. And one of them is the great banquet. And uh, rather than reading it to you at this stage, at the great banquet, the story, the parable is that a wealthy man wanted to have a banquet, sent his servant to go invite his friends. His friends came up with excuses and didn't come. So the servant had to come back and say, they're doing this and they're doing that. Well, the, um, the, the wealthy uh, person in, this, uh, in the parable, um, the, the ruler, said, well, he was angry saw through the excuses, and what was his response? His response was telling his servant, then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, crippled, the, excuse me, the blind and the lame. Okay, this is Jesus using this story, predicating the grace and generosity of this person as being motivated by what emotion was he experiencing? Anger. So Jesus' teaching was in the anger, do the gracious thing. Bless others. Love others and be gracious to others. There's another story that, this one's short, I want to read it. It's um, Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And this is where Jesus, you're going to hear, was actually angry, according to the verse. Another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would, if, uh, if he would, heal, um, if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. 
Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. What did Jesus do in his anger? He performed a miracle. He did a teaching. He was constructive. Okay? And this this is a very powerful story. It impacted the Pharisees a great deal. Their response was, this man has something that is a threat to us. He is something that is a threat to us. We need to really be serious about plotting to kill him. That's how powerful Jesus' response and his anger was in that moment. Okay. I, there, were two occasion, there are two occasions in Scripture where Jesus cleanses the temple. And I was always certain that that was an evidence of righteous anger. Okay? Um, the first one occurs early in his ministry and, and is reported in John 2, 12 through 25. We know it's early in his ministry because the later one that is reported is during Passion Week after um, uh, the triumphal entry. Okay, so this is early in his ministry. Um, he, he goes into the temple, and what does he do? He makes a whip. Okay? He uses the whip, not on people, but to drive out the livestock and he did not whip anybody. When asked about the authority that was why he did it, he taught about his coming death and resurrection. Okay. The second cleansing was during Passion Week. On this one, I'm going to read the version as described in Mark. Mark chapter 11, starting at verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around and every, uh, at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. I'm going to stop there. So Jesus went to Jerusalem and he went to the temple. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany. Okay, So he laid eyes on the temple that first night. Next day, the verse, verse 12, the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Let me, I'm going to actually jump down. Uh, verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves 
and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. Okay, so that's what he did. What I found really, what struck me when I read these verses is in none of the descriptions, I want you guys to, take, to read these, but none of the descriptions does it ever say that Jesus was angry. What's more compelling about what's going on with Jesus in this is what do we know that we're not supposed to do with our anger? We're not to allow the sun to go down on it. What did Jesus do at the time of the second cleansing? Went to the temple, saw, left, went to Bethany, spent the night, came back, laid eyes on the same scene, and immediately cleansed the temple. It's not clear. My, the inference that I've drawn from this is, I think there's a compelling argument that Jesus was not angry, that he was acting in a manner that was deliberate and was cleansing, purifying. Because if we're not, allowed, if, if we're not supposed to let the sun go down on our anger, Jesus had every reason to be angry when he went to the temple the first night. The, the lesson or takeaway from here is, um, on that story, is we frequently want to use it to ju justify bad behavior. And what we've seen in, in the other verses that, that, that I've spoken about is, is, is anger is a dangerous thing. And in close proximity to it can sometimes be sinful behavior. So if I'm turning over the tables and somebody comes to me later and says, well, I was, just, I was angry and that was a righteous anger, I probably need to check myself a little bit, okay? And I think for us, when we're talking about things of importance with people, are you raising your voice to overtalk them? Are you starting to take it personally? Are you speaking in anger? If you are, bring it down a notch because you don't need the anger. You need the clarity of thought, clarity of speech. Your message is your message, not your anger. So and I think it's important, particularly in, in, in the, the current day, you know, with what we're seeing on the streets, because um, it's frustrating mm -hmm. for all of us and very challenging. All right. I got a question. Is that sure. something we should avoid at all costs? Hmm? Is that something we should avoid at all costs? I mean, I have a business. I run business with different people. And uh, sometimes they want to talk politics, and I just, you know, I just see it in their eyes. They shut down. Well, you know, if they engage me, and I, as a lawyer, okay, um, as, a con as a Christian lawyer, as a Christian lawyer who might be characterized as being politically conservative, okay, I brush up against a lot of people that I have a lot of disagreements with. And, and I, Tim, you're, you're spot on in terms of your questions because I think that, that we shouldn't shrink away. I think that, again, um, being careful. If the person starts it with you, you know, they, maybe you give them a caution, are you sure you want to talk, and, you know, but I've got a point of view. But... The how we can effectively do it in a way that is not 
um, uh, uh, divisive, you know. Um, and I don't, and I got to be careful when I say, when somebody hears me say, don't be divisive, I'm not, you don't have to compromise truth, okay, but you can still be effective in your speech. And, 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 and having an understanding, I think, will give that to you. Um, sanctity of life. This is a, a, a tough one for us, um, and, and it's an important one. Um, and, uh, and it's one that in, in, in what I do as a living, you know, it, it does come up. Um, what I'd like to do is, you know, talk about some of your, our biblical foundation for how we should view the life issue and then move into an understanding of, of Roe v. Wade in a way that I think that will help your conversations with people. Because I think we have some um, uh, wrong thinking uh, in the area of Roe v. Wade. And, um, uh, and, and among Christians, you know, that... that um, uh, all right. First... This is a very touchy subject. You never know who's in the room. You don't know where they've been. And I think as a Christian wanting to be compassionate with uh, someone who's been touched by, by abortion, I think it's important that we have a sensitivity. And I think that if we have a good understanding of how where Christ's heart might be, it will temper how we express ourselves, how we have the conversation. And the, I think the best story in the Bible to help us with that mindset is in John 8, 1 through 11. And that's the woman that was caught in adultery. As you remember the story, um, a crowd brings her, a crowd brings her uh, to Jesus, and she's been caught in adultery. And what they're trying to do is, uh, you know, they're trying to test him. And uh, uh, he... Right, we don't know what it is, but he writes something in the sand and asks, you know, you who is without sin, cast the first stone. Well, Jesus knew the law. He was a good lawyer. He was. Because he knew that the person that had to cast the first stone was who? The accuser, the primary witness. Okay, well, who is the primary witness? Well, the primary witness is whoever this person is that's trying to set the trap for Jesus and use this woman to do it, okay? Um, he looks up, and everybody's taken off because they know that they're not without sin. What does he do? Woman, let me see. At this, those who heard uh, began to go away, and at, and, and at one at a time, and the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus strained up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. There are three actors in this story. There's the woman caught in sin. 
we're all her. We're all sinners. There's the crowd with a stone in their hand. That can be us sometimes, but it shouldn't be. And then there's Jesus, who we're called to be, who interceded, protected her, showed grace and mercy, and taught her. He didn't let her just go in her sin. He gracefully and mercifully mercifully taught her. That is our approach on this topic. Okay, what does Scripture say about life issues? Um, Ten Commandments. You shall not kill? No. You shall not murder. It's a term of art. This is where the culture plays games. You shall not murder. The, is it, I think it was the Aramaic word is ratsach, R-A-T-S-A-C-H, which is a wrongful killing. Wrongful killing, not killing. Okay? Thou shalt not commit murder. I say it that way because, one, we shouldn't do a wrongful killing. Abortion is a wrongful killing. I've also said it this way so that we leave here equipped to have the conversation with somebody who wants to use it in another context to say sometimes there are justifiable killings that are not in derogation or not contradictory to the Ten Commandments, okay? Um, Proverbs 6, 16 through 17. Things God hates, among which is the shedding of innocent blood. Proverbs 6, 16 through 17, okay? God hates the shedding of innocent blood. If there is ever innocent blood being shed, it's on this topic. And those Christians, this is an area where, are you a Bible-believing Christian? Yes, but I really don't think I want to get in the way of this woman's personal decision. It's not the personal decision, it's the baby. And it's God's word and desire to protect that baby. And, And there's scriptural authority for that. Uh, Deuteronomy 19, verse 10, uh, portion of it, so you shall not shed innocent blood in the midst of your land, okay? Um, In Israel, there were um, sanctuary cities, designated locations that if if I accidentally or maybe potentially justifiably, you and I have a fight, I kill you, your family wants to send somebody to kill me, I can go to a sanctuary city in order to have a reprieve, you can't kill me there, or your family can't kill me there, so that we can have a trial or some process to find out what happened, okay? So what God planned was, so there would not be the shedding of innocent blood in their land was these sanctuary cities. And the byproduct of that is, you shall not shed innocent blood in the midst of your land. How, how should a Christian feel to hear God say that 
about our land right now? We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are, there's sanctity in our lives, all of our lives, including the unborn, because we are made by God, fearfully and wonderfully. When I would take doctor's depositions, I had to catch myself frequently because we'd start talking about a joint and whether or not somebody had an injury or what was going on there. And the doctors would say things along the lines of, well, the knee is designed to do this and that and so forth. And the doctor had no clue what he was saying in terms of um, being a created being versus an evolved being. But uh, you know, it's, it's out there for us. Listen for it. You know, it's, it, it's, even those who are non-believing will talk about things being designed. So we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And if we're fearfully and wonderfully made of God, that would include the unborn. That deserves protection. And Genesis 1.27, we are made in the image of God, plain and simple. All right. Interpreting the Constitution. Um, generally speaking, this is the, 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 the law lesson, part of the law lesson. Um, generally speaking, there are two schools of thought on how our Constitution should be applied and used. There are those that look at what an original intent would be. Sometimes you hear those referred to as strict constructionists. And those who think that we need to seek, excuse me, an understanding with the point of view that it's a living and breathing document, okay? The first is our founding fathers wrote this with something in mind, with legal concepts in mind and so forth, governing concepts in mind. Um, what did they intend when they wrote it? Once we find out what they intended, on that topic, we then apply it to today, okay? The other is, well, our culture changes, so we've got to figure out how we can make those words apply, okay? Well, the problem with that one is I'm not anchored anywhere in that thinking, okay? Because more than likely, I'm going to carry in my mind a desired result to interpret those words to achieve that result, okay? We frequently hear, you know, we want courts and judges to interpret the law. I always wince when I hear that. That is a function to some degree. I like to use the word apply, okay? You're going to apply the Constitution. You're going to apply laws to facts and circumstances so that you understand the conclusion. Okay, in law school we were taught issue, um, uh, let me see, I forgot it now, it's been that long. <laughs> issue, rule, analysis, conclusion. What's your question? What's the dispute? What's the rule of law? Apply the facts to the situation, that's your analysis, and then what's the conclusion? Um, so the, the, uh, 
those that we would say of them are the more liberal persuasion don't like the strict constructionist point of view, okay? Because it presupposes an absolute truth. It presupposes that our founding fathers had concepts in mind and that was the bedrock of what they wrote and we've got to make it work with the way that it's written and apply that. Um, living, breathing document, again, is we're just going to try and evolve it so that the, it fits our culture, whatever our culture happens to be doing. Um, now, you have a conversation with somebody. You know, our founding fathers didn't think about whatever, okay? What I always want to hear the, you know, the talking heads bring up is the fact that, well, yeah, actually they did, con they did consider the reality that our culture is going to progress and our constitution might need to be changed. What they didn't do was say, Supreme Court, you are authorized and directed to rewrite the constitution from the bench. Okay, that's not in the constitution. What is in the constitution is Article 5. Article 5 provides for the method that we have amendments, which has been done. Okay, so when you have a conversation with somebody who wants to have a court bend the Constitution to fit the culture because our founding fathers didn't think of something beforehand, your response is they gave us principles to apply and they gave us a vehicle by which we can change the Constitution if we need to. Article 5. So, the fact that we might need to make changes isn't foreign to them. So keep that in mind. You know, and that's, and this, you, you know, so when you're, you're hearing people talk about judges and it's going to be in the, you know, we're going to be hearing a lot in the news in terms of uh, a Supreme Court justice uh, consideration right now. Now, what does our Supreme Court say about, or excuse me, what does our Constitution say uh, on the topic of life? We have the Fifth Amendment. We have the Fifth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment. The Fifth Amendment, when it was drafted, it was interpreted to apply to the federal government. Okay? Fourteenth Amendment was, was adopted, ratified after the Civil War. That one is supposed to, has been interpreted to apply to the states and control. In other words, the Fifth Amendment interacted between the individual and the federal government. The 14th Amendment was written so as to relate between the individual and the states, among other things. Fifth Amendment says, nor shall any person be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. When that baby is taken, it's deprived of life. Have we had a trial as to whether or not that baby deserves to live? or die. No, we haven't. That baby's been deprived of due process. Plain and simple. Roe v. Wade. First, you ever heard anybody say, well, Roe v. Wade is the law of the land. Okay? Roe v. Wade is the law of the land and we shouldn't touch it. You're going to hear it a bunch coming up. That it's the pinnacle of legal discussion of this topic 
and therefore should not be touched because there's a concept called stare decisis. It's a Latin word, which a fancy Latin word that just means today's court has to follow what yesterday's court did. Okay? The Supreme Court has a legacy of rethinking its point of view. Okay? And when somebody says we should leave Roe v. Wade alone, there are two cases I want you to keep in mind. They're not on the notes. But one is Dred Scott v. Sandford, S-A-N-D-F-O-R-D. It's from 1857. And the holding of that case can be summarized as follows. Black people, regardless of whether they were enslaved or free, could not be considered citizens of the United States within the meaning of the U.S. Constitution. That was the Supreme Court. Hmm? Law of the land. Can't be touched. Plessy versus Ferguson, U.S. Supreme Court in uh, 1896. Racial segregation laws were held to be constitutional. That's one that the Supreme Court, because it's after, that was a holding that came after the post-Civil War constitutional amendments. Okay, So that's with the help of the changes that have been made to the Constitution following the Civil War, okay? Racial segregation laws were held to be constitutional. Separate but equal is okay. This is the one that you can stop the people that are not thinking clearly in their tracks about stare decisis and whether or not Roe v. Wade can be readdressed and the topic can be addressed. Um, Brown versus the Board of Education is where that was reversed, okay? So the Supreme Court went back, took a look at this ruling, and said, oh, not good law, okay? It took them a while, but they got around to doing it, okay? I think it was in the 50s. I don't remember exactly. But anyhow, so keep that in mind, because that's... Roe v. Wade is their cornerstone, you know, the, the, the pro-abortion community, and it can't be touched in their mind. And... We're going to say and do whatever we can to not allow it to be touched. And, you know, the, there is a litmus test, like it or not, there's a litmus test on, among most in the Senate about Roe Ro v. Wade and whether or not it should be attacked because it's stare decisis. Well, if it's a bad opinion, maybe it should be. So anyhow, all right. What did Roe v. Wade do? Um, there's a concept that you'll see that, that gets used, and that is result-oriented opinions. Okay, and what that means is sometimes a court, this is where I want it to come. And they make that conclusion intellectually before they do their legal research. Okay, this is kind of a simplification, but I want to get here. How do I write an opinion to get there? If you read Roe v. Wade, it really looks that way, okay? Um, ordinarily, the way that you approach this decision-making, okay, I want to walk you through how you do original intent, okay, because I think this will be helpful. What did our founding fathers intend? Okay. Well, it's in the Constitution. It's the Fifth Amendment. Okay, what words did they mean? Um, 
what do these words mean in the context of their language at the time that they wrote it? Not what, the word, what we've made the words become today, but what, how are they, they used, okay? Well, instead of doing that, what the, what the Supreme Court did was they invited some experts to come in. They looked at ancient attitudes, what the Hippocratic Oath says. They looked at English common law. And I, actually, that just triggered me because I, I didn't completely tell you. When our Constitution was adopted, when we became a no nation fully formed by way of our Constitution, there were statutes and laws on the books, federal and state. The courts operated as follows. To the extent that the Constitution or the state and federal laws don't say otherwise, we're going to grab the English common law and use it for our operation, because we haven't covered all of our bases yet. And we're going to have to do that over time. But until we do, we're grabbing those terms and phrases and their, their common law and using it here. Okay. Um, the Supreme Court should have done that. Okay. When their, our, our founding fathers wrote the Fifth Amendment, what did they have in mind? Well, what was the common law at the time? They didn't do that. So what they did instead was they, they heard from various experts, and um, uh, there had been a prior opinion that created what's called the right to privacy. Um, and based on the right to privacy, they answered the question, is, is the baby a person? If it's not a person, it doesn't get protected. Okay, It has no constitutional rights. If it is, it does, okay? So um, they said, based on the mother's right to privacy, and we find that the baby is not a person, abortion can be allowed. That's where they went. Now, when, in reading the opinion, why you can find out it's a, it's, it's a, results-oriented opinion that is a lot of strained reasoning is because as you're reading it, they're talking out of both sides of their mouth because they say we're going to adhere to and use a right to privacy, but in the same opinion, the Constitution does not explicitly mention any right to privacy. So this marginal right, okay, um, supersedes the very literal language of the Fifth Amendment. And what's interesting is they use a word, penumbra. You know what, I can't spell it right now, but penumbra. And even in law school, I thought penumbra was, okay, this is like, that means like a nuance, because what they would say is, a, based on the penumbra of the Fifth and the Fourteenth Amendment, we find this right to privacy and we find so forth, okay? You know what a penumbra is? It's a space where light and dark meet. Wow. Isn't that interesting? So like the ter what they refer to the terminator on the moon, which is where the, the, the bright, and the, that line would be a penumbra, to give you a visual. So the penumbra that gives them the ability to put together their reasoning is where light and dark meet. They didn't know what they were saying. Okay.
So, um, so they found that the baby's not a person. The woman's right to privacy prevails. And therefore, abortion can be legal. Okay. I'm going to ask a question. If a being is not a person, does it ever get protected by the Constitution? If you're going to be logical, and I want to go to the logical extreme right now, no. The dog is not a person. It doesn't have constitutional protections. Okay, A piece of property, my ownership right, but that's my protection. Okay, So if, if I've ruled that a baby is not a person, I have said that person, that entity, is not protected by the Constitution. Okay, because I've taken, personhood is what's protected. Okay, you're, I've taken you out. Okay. And then what's the definition of a person? A living being, us, postpartum. At what point are you a living being? We're going to get to that. So, I want, I'm emphasizing that point because you read the language, this is a quote from the opinion, okay? The, 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 it is reasonable and appropriate for a state to decide that at some point in time, another interest, that of health, the health of the mother or that of potential human life becomes significantly involved. The woman's privacy is no longer sole and any right of privacy she possesses must be measured accordingly. What is this entity that they're protecting? Okay? It's the baby, okay? But the court couldn't go there because they were, they, and, and what you see here, I think, is an emotional and an intellectual struggle that's all about our core knowing that it's wrong. I think that you see that in the opinion that the political pressures, I've got to get here, I'm not comfortable going here, but I've got to go there. How do I get there? Okay? All right? And as a byproduct of that, we have what's called the trimester system. Okay? And it's a th three layers that tell you when the state can be involved in abortion in terms of regulating it. Um, first trimester, the mom has complete decision-making. The second trimester... Uh, may be regulated to the extent necessary to pr promote the state's interest in the health of the mother. The third trimester, where it is necessary and appropriate medical judgment for the preservation of the life and health of the mother. Okay? So the third trimester, the Supreme Court says that the state can regulate and prohibit abortion. Okay? All right. Well, the third trimester is the 28th week. Uh, all right. However, what do we know about medical science now? You know, that opinion was, what, 72? 73. Or 73? Okay. Come a long way. Premies are doing great. So what's happened now is because it's based on, the trimester system was based on viability. The more viable this non-person becomes, okay, the more likely it's subject to protection. Now, what's interesting is if had the courts used, um, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Ask me what the common law of England had to say on the topic, if, in case I forget, because I want to I, I, I stick with the slides. So, um, so what we know about Roe v. Wade is, is a, there is a built-in technologic erosion 
of its scope, okay? Because as medical science gets better at what it does, the question of viability comes earlier. The question of viability coming earlier, the states can choose then to regulate abortion earlier in the term of the pregnancy. Now, what's important in keeping in mind is Roe v. Wade doesn't restrict or prohibit abortion, okay? It says where a state may get involved in the question. So a state could conceivably say, we're not going to regulate abortion. That's the logical extreme of Roe v. Wade. Okay. Well, if the state can say we're not going to get into the question, what does that mean? You can have an abortion right up until the last day. That's why Roe v. Wade is a flashpoint. It is a coming flashpoint for us. Um, it would be very easy for the Supreme Court to do, I say easy, that's really kind of an overstatement, but to go two directions, one of two directions could either say, you know what, earlier we said the baby is not a person. Roe v. Wade is wrong because we allowed the state to intervene at all. Therefore, because the baby is not a person, it's not protected at all. Um, or what I would hope they would do is we recognize that there's some right here that needs to be protected because we're looking at the third trimester. Okay, that flies in the face of it not being a person. Let's look at this question again. Okay, now when we look at this question again, maybe we'll do it right. And if we do it right, let's look at English common law at the time that the Fifth Amendment was written. And this is what's interesting. What the common law of England said at the time was when the mother felt a stirring the baby would get protection, okay? Well, at the time the Constitution was written, when were we absolutely sure that the mother was pregnant? There may be some symptoms and signs, but we didn't know unequivocally until when. She felt the stirring, okay? So the technology of the day to determine when somebody was pregnant and when the baby became protected was a stirring, okay? Well, if we were to use that same logic today, when do we know for sure the woman is pregnant? That's when the baby gets protected. What happens? Within days. Yep. Yep. Um, so this is a battleground that, that, you know, any questions? I know this is sometimes kind of like drinking water from a fire hydrant. Yes. Well, we're getting close to the end of time, and I, 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 I'm ha I've, I've done the outline in such a way that we can. Uh, there's more to be said here, I think, and, and you're, that's a segue for the Center for Medical Progress. I'm not sure if you're familiar. About five years ago, the, there was somebody that was doing videos at planned pregnancy events, and it had to deal with talking to them about harvesting baby parts. Do you remember that? Um, as I watched that video, 
Uh, I, I watched, I think, just about all of them. And what struck me was they frequently, it, it's illegal for them to change how they do the abortion in order to harvest organs, okay? They would love to, okay? So, for instance, having a baby born breech allows them to harvest the organs better, um, the tissues that they want, and, and that's actually part of the conversation that you hear. Um, they're not allowed to directly, prone pregnancy is not allowed to directly sell the material, okay? But what they do is they go to a pharmaceutical company, and pharmaceutical company says, well, how much does it cost you to produce this stuff, okay? And a million dollars. Okay, well, we're going to write you a check for a million dollars because that's what it costs you. Either it has to be, I'm making the numbers up, but, but, but cost-based. In other words, they're not allowed to profit off of this stuff. But, um, uh, but the, in, underlying the conversations, you hear a couple of things. One is a recognition that we're getting tissues from an unborn baby. Okay, they call it a fetus but an unborn baby. We're not taking mom's tissues. We're taking a baby's tissues, a separate and distinct being, okay, a person. Um, that argument, I think, needs to be out there. So when Planned Parenthood is after these body parts, they're taking separate body parts of a baby. Additionally, they have conversations in there about viability of the organ, okay? Well, viability is a buzzword in Roe v. Wade. The more viable the baby becomes, that's why the trimester system was initially established, the more protection the baby gets. Well, they're using the viability. We want to do a procedure so that those organs that we get are in as good a shape as we can get them. It's ghoulish, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and, and, it's, and it's cooked into the fabric of, of even their thinking that these are separate organs, this is a separate being. Um, uh, and and um, anyhow, any questions? I think we'll stop here. Repeat the question. Yeah. And I think you're missing one of the points is that the fact that we started walking away from God back in the 60s, late 50s, 60s, and started going out and trying to think for ourselves. Exactly. You know. But when this country started walking away from God, because I was I was young enough to where we would stand up and pledge allegiance to a flag, we would do the Lord's Prayer, and I was blessed enough. And this was public school. This was Walmart well, Elementary School. And I was blessed enough to have a lady in fifth grade read to me after lunch from the Bible. And when we're walking away from God, and you're trying to have these conversations, and, and it's tough enough just having conversations with fellow Christians <laughs> when we could all agree that God is first. Right. But when you start going out and talking to people that don't even, can't even make a, 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 uh, a decision to say that man is a man and a woman is a woman, <laughs> and that's our next battle. I'm 
Oh, we're we're already there. You know, we're as a na you know our, our culture. We've got a governor right now in Virginia that the, the mother can deliver the baby and make a decision at that time whether or not she wants to terminate the person. That's murder. But well, the governor being a Democrat, and yes, I'll say the word. You guys all sit in here and put a dress around, and the Republicans aren't any darn better because we're a bunch of milk toasts. Yep. <laughs> One thing you can say about the Democrats, they stick together and they, they'll carry a lie to right up to your face. Yeah, they will. And, and we sit there and we, and, and we as Christians are just about as bad because, as you said at the beginning of your program, we don't get out and vote, we don't voice, we don't stand up to people and go, no, we're not going to do this. No, we're, you can't do this. No, this is a boy because I've seen pictures. Well, I, let me. I. Uh, um, this is not an endorsement of a candidate. I'm gonna be careful. I don't want to get us in trouble. But you know what I see. see just that's what I'm well, let me. Let me. Well, you don't want to make an endorsement of a candidate. You, you got You pick the best of the worst two. Agreed. Two. Agreed. But but I did, what I don't want to do is jeopardize the ministry because of five hundred one c three status. I'm not either, but I, but I, I, I got to make sure. But, but we can have. Let me. Where I was headed is this. I agree that the folks that we tend to agree with the most, and the, you know, where I, I've been talking to a friend of mine today, the debates. Some of these rascals that are moderators of these debates, how they got to be in that position, somebody's got to answer to that. Okay. And the one of the two sides, let it happen. Okay, back to your milk toast comment. Okay, they let it happen. Um, I will be just so that you know. We're going to get through this. Finish this up on the. On the let me, go ahead. Let me make my last point. How we got to where we were with Roe v. Wade was pre political pressure put on by the public to the Supreme Court to get to where they wanted, they knew where they wanted to be, so they passed the law, as you said, I'm not an attorney, don't play one on TV, but they were able to pass a law, Roe v. Wade, to get where they needed to go to patronize the public at the time. It was... And, and the same thing with gay marriage. A few years ago, back when gay marriage was real popular and everything, then it was, oh, okay, We'll give the woman a chance to have an abortion and stuff. That'll put you all go down. We'll calm down. Then we'll get them gay married. That'll be all right. Pretty soon, we're going to be dressed for boys and girls and girls and boys. Oh, that'll patronize. No. When we walk away from God, it, it takes away our moral compass of what is right and what's wrong. And pretty soon, dark is going to be light. Light's going to be dark. And we're going to, there, you know. I think we're in a large part in a lot of areas, in, in a lot of areas, I think that we have conceded, when I say we as a culture, we've conceded so much ground that, that light is dark, and dark is, you know, I, you know, I, but I will be, um, where I was headed is, I'm, my intention is, um, I want to go over some economic issues in terms of how we respond to the poor, taxes, and also separation of church and state. Um, for our next uh, time together, in addition to what's there, so there'll be a little bit more material to, to put on top. Um, and and if you guys, I'm happy to. I can add on 
you know, I, I, you know, and I apologize. I, I had intended to take a brief break so everybody could go to the bathroom, and I saw a few people going out. I kind of was a little convicted on that. Sorry. Um, any other questions before we go? I, I, I appreciate your patience. <laughs>